listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8. If you don't, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that's provided in the rack and the seat in front of you. And as we always say, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible and let it be our gift to you. We are just beginning. We're in our second week of a journey through what I think is the greatest chapter in the Bible, the greatest chapter ever written. One of the great mountain peaks of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. And we are handling just a few verses today, Romans 8, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, which are very, very important in understanding the gospel and who we are and what we need. So in just a moment, we're going to read those verses and work our way through them. I think most of us tend to just have this sort of internal computer in us whereby we analyze and categorize the world, and especially people. It's a subconscious sort of reflex. We look at people and we're, we're thinking what walk of life they're coming from. Auburn fan, Georgia fan, Army, Navy, good looking, not so good looking, West Coast, East Coast, maybe some ethnicity. Even subconsciously, I think we're categorizing people into their usefulness to us in life. And we tend to just complexify, if that's a word, complicate people and life. When actually, I think, what the scripture that we're going to read today is telling us is that really there are only two types of people in the world and there are only two ways to live. This idea of complicating actually very simple things takes me back to my youth in Southern California on the Mexican border and the culinary delights that are Mexican food. I've got a fellow Mexican here, uh, Aurora Villegas. Actually, I'm not Mexican, but I thought I was until I was about 12 growing up on the border. <laughs> so I have a, a, an alma mexicana. But there's something about Mexican food, right? It sounds complicated, but it's actually really quite simple. You have a tortilla that's filled with either meat or beans. I just described 90% of Mexican food for you, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's called an enchilada. And an enchilada is a, usually a soft tortilla that's baked in an oven, filled with meat or beans, covered with some sort of sauce and other accoutrements. But at the end of the day, it is a tortilla filled with meat or beans. Then you have a burrito, which is usually dry and not baked like an enchilada. And it can be filled with all sorts of stuff. Shredded beef, muchaca. It can be filled with guacamole and frijoles and cheese. All sorts of stuff. But at the end of the day, it is a tortilla filled with meat or beans. Then you have a, a taquito, 
which is usually deep fried and it is usually a corn tortilla and it's filled with meat or beans or other such fillings. But friends, it's called a taquito, but at the end of the day, it is a tortilla filled with meat or beans. And then you have a flauta. Now, a flauta is very similar to a taquito, but it's usually not deep fried. Sometimes it's, it can be either corn or flour tortilla, but basically it is a tortilla filled with meat or beans. Then you have a tostada. A tostada is flat. The tortilla is flat and it's usually deep fried. So it's kind of got a hard consistency. So you can pick it up and bite it in one glorious bite. And it has maybe a layer of beans and meat and lettuce and guacamole and pico de gallo. But at the end of the day, friends, it is a tortilla with meat or beans. What else is there? I don't know. There are many other things. Friends... There are only two types of Mexican food. There are tortillas either filled with beans or meat. (laughs) And what Paul is arguing here is that there are only two ways to live. There are only two people, types of people in the world. Those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. Those that are led by the Spirit of God and those that are led by the flesh. Let's read verses 5 through 8 and pray. Paul writes these words, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life, and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul is explaining to us here that there are two types of people those that have set their mind on the flesh, those that are in the flesh. And that leads to death. And those that set their mind on the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit. And the end of that is life and peace. I have an outline that we're going to work through as we dissect this verse. So I'm going to give it to you up front so you know where we're going. And you can hold on to this outline as as handlebars to guide us. Paul here is not really telling us to do anything. He's describing the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. So here's our outline. We're going to look at a description of those who live according to the flesh, which is Paul's phrasing for somebody who is not trusting in Christ, who is not born again, who does not have the Spirit of God living in them, has caused them to trust in Jesus. Then we're going to look at a description of those who do live according to the Spirit. And Paul is not talking about a level of sanctification or a Christian who has a particular gift, or he's talking about Christians there. So to live according to the Spirit is Paul's description of what it means to be a Christian. And then finally, we're going to look at how then a person goes from one to the other, how a person goes from living in the flesh to living in the Spirit. And to do that, we're going to need God's help. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. And after we work through this text, we have the great joy and privilege to watch two brothers from our church be baptized 
this morning and to hear the gospel preached through their testimonies that will be read. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Oh Lord, I've been praying it a lot recently and I pray it again this Sunday, that old prayer of the church, that what we know not, Lord, we pray that you would teach us. What we have not and truly do need, we pray that you would grant us. And what we are not, we pray that by your word and by your Holy Spirit, you would make us do wonderful things today, Lord. Lift our eyes so that we can see Jesus. Convict and encourage and stir the affections of the believers in this room. And Lord, for those that are not yet trusting in Christ, for those that are still walking in the flesh, governed by their desires, Lord, it is no accident It's no happenstance that they are here this morning. Would you, by your grace, grant them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe the beautiful truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done to make us alive. I pray that you'd do all this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first description that Paul makes for us, the first point in our outline, the description of those who live according to the flesh. Paul is speaking here, as I said, not just about particularly like carnal, uh, earthly-minded people or people that are just really, really sinful. Paul here in Romans and in the rest of his letters, when he uses this phrase about people that live according to the flesh, he's talking about people that are outside of Christ, that are governed by their desires. And, and to this phrase here that Paul uses, setting the mind on the flesh, is, is I think a much larger category than we instinctively sort of generally think about. When we think of the word flesh, I think most of us just sort of had a, have a category of a particular set of sins. Maybe things that are particularly sort of scandalous or maybe uh, physical in nature or lust in na- lustful in nature, maybe even sexual in nature. And certainly it, that is including that. But Paul's category here in Romans chapter 8 and in much of the rest of the Bible where this is used is this idea of just being uh, self-centered, the sin-dominated self as one commentator puts it. Paul has in mind here people, all people, whether they be relatively decent in their nature and their lives as the world would perceive it, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit more, or whether they be obviously evil or whatever the case, he is talking about people who are not trusting in Christ, who are outside of Christ, and who, by their very nature, are continuing to live a life dominated and led by their carnal desires. That's what Paul is describing here, and that's who are those who are living according to the flesh. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that there are only two types of people, those who are in Christ and outside of Christ, those who are living in the flesh and those who are living in the spirit, just like there's only two types of Mexican food, right? But there are certain variations, and so I think it would be helpful for us to just think. Let's admit that there are different variations, different flavors of of people that live according to the flesh. I think the one that comes to us most obviously is people that are sort of obviously evil. I think it's obvious for us to look at violent criminals, 
dictators, people who've given themselves over to debauchery or drunkenness or some sort of public obvious sin, whether it's lustful in nature or whatever, it's, it's sort of obvious for us to look at that person and say, well, they're just obviously evil, living according to the desires of their wicked heart. But then there are other types of people that live according to the flesh. There are people that are just indifferent to the message of the gospel, to the reality of God, to who he is. Maybe these are people that are atheists and they just think, well, you know, they may seem on the horizontal plane to be relatively decent people, but they are governed by their self-centered desire to create reality and to define reality by their terms and they are just indifferent to spiritual things, indifferent to the reality of a creator God to whom they may be accountable. Those seemingly decent people fall within this description of those that live according to the flesh. Then you have people that aren't indifferent to spiritual things. There, there may be spiritual seekers, spiritual pluralists, spiritual relativists. They're people that, you know, it's kind of the, hey, it works for me, whatever works for me, let's just, let's just all try and, you know, seek a higher power. And friends, I think this is probably the dominant spirit of our age. There would even be people that would think themselves to be Christians, filled, that fill up churches even in our land, maybe even in our city. Maybe you even have this mentality that, you know, this is good for me, but what's good for somebody else raised in some other foreign land or some of the cultures kind of, you know, just sort of a pluralistic, relativistic view of spiritual things. And as long as we're all kind of on this pathway to trying to be relatively decent people, we're all pretty, pretty okay. That is a false view of God. It's a false view of reality. And it is ultimately governed by a life that is set according to its own desires. It's governed by a false sense of the way things are. Then you have, I think, another category or variation of those who live according to the flesh. It would be what I would call the religiously self-righteous, the modern-day Pharisees. I got a little bit of this in me. I think all of us do to some degree. You know, we think that we're right with God because we are members of a church or because we grew up here in the South or because we, you know, our dad was a deacon or our grandmother played the piano or whatever. Whatever sort of thing that we sort of hang our self-righteousness on, we find ourselves uh, better than the people next to us and we consider ourselves even to be Christians and moral people, but ultimately we misunderstand the gospel when we think this way because we think that we are better than the people around us because of something that we do and because we are better than everybody else around us. It's kind of the old, you know, I don't drink, smoke, or chew or hang around with people that do. And I don't watch rated R movies, right? And so I must be better than the next guy. And you know what? Here's the other thing about me that really makes me better than the rest of people. I, I watch Fox News and not MSNBC, <laughs> right? I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that there are people that think that you're justified by your political conservatism. Friends, that is sinful self-righteousness. There are many people like that in our region. And then there are just kind of the, the people that may, might, might not be sinfully self-righteous. They might not be religious pluralists. But they're just decent, relatively morally good people. And I think this is the way we would categorize most people that we 
rub shoulders with and share workspaces with and are friends with. This category of people that live according to the flesh is, is often difficult to discern because what, what seems as a sort of general goodness and humility and kindness, when it is detached from God, is actually idolatry. So how, how is this? Well, we've used this analogy many, many times. Think of relative human morality on the horizontal plane, okay? Let's categorize our human goodness or relative morality or the, the good neighbor that you have living next door to you who is not a Christian, but you think, how can that person be, like outside, be living according to the flesh, which is ultimately going to result if they don't turn and trust in Jesus and their separation from God? How can God justly and graciously not you know, punish that person for their goodness. Well, let's, let's, let's do some work to think about relative, horizontal, human plane goodness. The analogy that we've used before is like a, a child who's raised by good parents who give him every privilege and benefit. And then this child leaves home, goes and gets a wonderful education funded by his parents, and then goes on to get a great job and does what seems to be horizontally a bunch of good works and is receiving even an award and acclaim in his sphere of work and influence for his good works, but doesn't invite his parents to the award ceremony. In fact, when his parents call him, he refuses their phone call, and since he moved out of their house, he has refused every, uh, every uh, communication from his parents. We wouldn't call that kid good, even though he's doing some good things, in a sense, on a horizontal plane we would call him ungrateful, right? Because his goodness is tainted by his severing of the fountain from which his goodness flowed, which was the generosity and graciousness of his parents. In the same way, friends, human goodness is not good at all when it doesn't acknowledge the source of its good. So friends, our relative horizontal goodness, when it doesn't give glory back to God as its source and foundation, is like a term paper that's turned in with no bibliography. It can be full of a bunch of good stuff, but it will get a failing grade every time because you are not citing the source, right? Try and turn that in you CSU students, turn in a paper with a bunch of quotes that you don't put the quotes in or footnote and no bibliography. You can have all sorts of good stuff in that paper, but if you don't cite your source, you are plagiarizing. And so human, did I get somebody, somebody was like, yeah, that was me. I mean, I, no, okay, all right. No, I didn't want to touch a sore spot there. Okay, I'm sorry. I know those bibliographies can be, you know, Hard to put together, and every little different style manual has their own little way that you should do it, and it's frustrating. Come on, I get that. I've been there. But friends, do you, do you see that human morality, without then turning back to give glory to God, is at its core plagiarism, which is idolatry. And so all people that are not trusting in Christ are in the flesh which leads to death. But there's something even more striking that Paul says about the mind of the flesh, which is death. Let me read verses 7 and 8 again. Friends, these are stinging, 
important words that we must wrestle with. He then says something about this mind or this type of person. He says, For the mind of the flesh, Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind of the flesh that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So it's not neutral, even though from our perspective that person may be a relatively good neighbor. Deep down inside there's this hostility to reject the source of their goodness, right? So do you see how there's actually, the Bible calls it enmity. You're at war with God if you don't acknowledge him because he is the source of all goodness. So you, we, the, the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now listen to this. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I think the more striking thing about these verses is not just that Paul categorizes all people into just two groups. Those that are in the spirit that are Christians and those that are in the flesh which are not Christians. And we did some work there to think about how that is really just all people that are not trusting in Christ giving glory back to the source of all of their life and goodness. But a striking thing that we need to wrestle here is that the, with, with here is that the mind that is set on the flesh is unable. Unable to please God in any way. Now, it's not to say that people can't do relatively good things. Unbelievers can do good things that God can use for his glory. We pray for people to come up with a cure for cancer every day. We pray for God to use politicians who may not trust in him as his means by which he brings about some peace and some conflict or good in our world. God can use unbelievers and people that are living in the flesh to bring about his providential purposes. That's what he's been doing since the beginning of time. But in a way that relates to an individual person standing before a holy God, that person in their flesh, in their disregard of God, in their idolatry, in their self-trust, is, the Bible says clearly, unable to please God. We read it this morning. Will read it just a few minutes ago from Colossians 2. It says that the result of sin is, verse 13, we are dead in our trespasses. We're not just minimized. We're not just made less than. We're dead. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, don't we read that and just think of really sick, twisted, demented people? That's not who Paul alone is talking to. He's talking to this category of people, which is what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, those that are in the flesh. Not just the obviously evil, demented, lustful people, but the indifferent, the spiritual seeker pluralist, the religiously self-righteous, the seemingly moral good are dead in their sins and completely unable to do anything about their state before God. Dead people can do nothing in and of themselves to change their deadness. Which I think brings up a very important concept that we need to think about as, as Americans, right? We grew up on literature. 
It's escaping my mind right now, but it's a great piece of American literature. Somebody will be emailing it to me before I even finish my sentence. So you Google it, pull it open. That We are the captains of our own soul, right? Right? We are the captains. We are, we, we are the determiners of our own destiny. Friends, the Bible actually takes it another direction. It says, no, we are, our will is not free. Our will is enslaved. The mind that is set on the flesh is enslaved. It's captive. Oh, it's free in a sense. It's free to do whatever it wants to do, right? But it is not free to in any way that would change itself before God. It is not free to come back to life. It's dead. It's unable. It is not free to submit to God's law because Paul says here that the mind that is set on the flesh isn't just, in, isn't just uh, minimized, isn't just, isn't just you know, uh, weakened. It is dead. It cannot please God. So friends, before we move on to our, our outline number two, the description of those who live in the Spirit, we have to come to grips with this stark reality that those that are outside of Christ, maybe some of us in this room, those of us that are in Christ, before we came to Christ, we were un. Able. We were in a predicament. We needed God, but we were completely unable to savingly reach out to Him or do anything about our predicament. And that's what Paul is saying about those that are in the flesh. It eventually will lead in their death, lead to their death, which is separation from God. And they are in a place where they are unable. Well, let's keep going then to the description of those who live according to the Spirit. Paul now is speaking about not just people that have, you know, a particular level of spiritual maturity. He's not talking about people that have a particular spiritual gift. He is talking about all those that have trusted in Christ, that are now indwelled, that have the Spirit of God in them. We're going to dwell on that some more when we continue to march on in Romans 8. That to have the Spirit of God is to be a Christian. If we don't have the Spirit of God, we're not Christians. And so Paul is going to describe for us those that live according to the Spirit. So let's think a little bit about what it means to live according to the Spirit. He says there are those in verse 5 that live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then the second part of verse 6, he says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So how does this come about? How does a person become in the Spirit? Well, I think the Bible, because remember, we just talked about the predicament that we're in. If we're not in the Spirit, if we're not Christians, we are dead in our sins. Friends, the Bible is clear that we are in the Spirit, we are in Christians because of a supernatural change brought about by the Holy Spirit. I think a wonderful example of this is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. I'd encourage you to read John chapter 11 this afternoon or this evening or sometime this week. John chapter 11 is this story of Jesus and his three friends 
Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. So Jesus is in another town at this time, and he's ministering, healing the sick. Mary and Martha, who are Lazarus' sisters, come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, our brother Lazarus is very, very sick, and we know that you're able to heal, so would you come quickly and heal Lazarus before he, he gets worse and maybe even dies? And Jesus seemingly kind of gives him sort of the, you know, the spiritual Heisman, kind of like, yeah, I'll be there in a little bit. Chill out, girls. I got some other stuff to do. By the way, I'm paraphrasing right now. I hope you realize. (laughs) And he takes his time, and Mary and Martha go back. And in the meantime, Lazarus' illness progresses, and Lazarus dies. Now Mary and Martha are very upset with Jesus because if he would have come, they believe that he could have healed him before he, he had died. But Jesus, even before that, says that Lazarus, the reason he's like this is because the glory of God is going to be re- revealed in him. And so Jesus eventually gets to Lazarus' tomb, and Lazarus is dead, and he's in the grave. He's in the tomb. He's wrapped up in linen grave clothes. And the Bible wanting to emphasize to us that Lazarus is not just asleep or sort of in a coma, but that he's actually dead, says in the King James English that he, say it with me, he stinketh. Oh, great. You guys, <laughs> you guys grew up on the same little Bible verses that I did. Awesome, right? So Lazarus' body is already beginning the decomposition process. And Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus, who is dead, who is completely unable to do anything about his predicament. He is like those that Paul has described to us in Romans 8. He is living according to the flesh. That flesh has brought about death. That death is now working its process of decomposition. A decomposing body cannot all of a sudden decide to have its heart beat just because it wants to change and improve its life. Lazarus is dead. Jesus comes to the edge of the tomb and he says to Lazarus, get up. Get up. And because Jesus' word is more powerful and because Jesus' mercy is greater than our shackled will, Jesus' word and power and will overpowered death and Lazarus's fettered will and made him come back to life, friends. And so what we need to first understand about those who live according to the Spirit, which is shorthand for Christians, those who have been brought to faith in Jesus, is that it is because of a supernatural change and life brought about or wrought by the Holy Spirit. So friends, understand this. To be a Christian is not to decide to do better. It's not to get invited to church by some friend who realizes that you've had a tough decade and thinks that you need to start doing some stuff to improve yourself, although you probably do. But to be a Christian at its core, friends, is to have a supernatural, outside of you, outside of the power of mankind or this world, a supernatural change wrought in your heart, not because of anything good in you, but because of the beautiful, rich mercy God. He says this to Israel in the Old Testament. Read Ezekiel. I'm giving you reading assignments. That's what I'm doing. That bibliography stuff and term paper just got me on this sort of academic mindset. So I'm just handing out homework right now. Right? So read John 11 and also read Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 23 through 27 or just the whole chapter if you want to get crazy. Right? And in that beautiful chapter, God is promising the new covenant to his people Israel, which are 
among many other things, a picture of what it means to be a Christian. So God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament have certain real significance for the nation of Israel. But one of the great things that God is doing in the Old Testament as he's walking with Israel is he's giving us a picture of salvation and what it means to walk. And he's promising Israel that he will take their heart of stone and he will give them a heart of flesh and that he will give them his Holy Spirit so that they are now able. They're now able. They were unable, but he's going to give them what they don't have so that they are now able to follow his statutes. So then, when God rots and brings about this supernatural change in us, gives us a new heart, calls us to life because of the power of his gospel and grace, it now means that we change. We have a a necessary change of direction and attitude and mind. The Bible calls it repentance and faith. We turn away from the things that we were once trusting in and we walk towards God in faith because, not because we decided in our own strength to do it, but because God gave us what we didn't have and now that we have it, we have a new heart and new desires to follow him. Here's a description of what it means to be a Christian. And I think another reading assignment for you, but I'm going to read this to you so that we're going to do some homework in class now, boys and girls. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. I think this is just a wonderful description of what it means to be a Christian. So Paul's writing to this church, and he says, let me start in verse 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So he's saying we know you're Christians. Why? Verse 5, how do we know you're Christians? How do we know that this supernatural sovereign change has been wrought in your heart? Why? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So what he's saying there in verse 5 is we know you're Christians because we can see it in your life. We can see the change. We can see that it came in power and action and conviction and it's brought about a change in you. He keeps going and he says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith and God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Okay, now verses 9 and 10 I think are this beautiful description of the Christian life. So he says, for they, there's this other group of people in the other churches, Macedonia and others, they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you. In other words, what effect the gospel had on you. What effect salvation had on you. What effect being made alive in Christ had on you. And this is Paul's description of the gospel of salvation, of the supernatural change in the Thessalonians. He says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is repentance and faith, right? So when, I, when we say idols, don't think of some little golden statue of a chubby guy on a, on a shelf, right? Think of the things that suck our heart away, that we give allegiance to rather than God, whatever it may be. And he says that this is a description of what it means to be a Christian. You've turned away from from those idols to serve 
the living, true God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So to be a Christian is to turn, to trust, to serve, and to wait for Jesus to come and make all things right. That's what people that walk according to the Spirit do. They fight sin, and then they are enabled to carry out and fulfill the law that we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. It says that now the Spirit that's in us helps us to live out the righteous requirements of the law. So a change of mind, a change of the direction of our life, a change of heart is essential. Friends, clearly, clearly this doesn't mean that Christians are sinless or perfected in any way or better than anybody else. If you think that is the case, uh, maybe you are not yet a Christian and you were invited by a friend or a loved one and you're trying this church out and one of the objections that you've had to Christianity is that Christians are hypocritical, that they profess one thing and do another. Yes, you're absolutely right. Welcome to this little thing we like to call humanity. This just in. You do too. Right? We're all hypocrites. I mean, come on. We are all so stinking complicated and jacked up. I think the difference between people that truly understand the gospel is that they're just, they're just understand it and they're humble and they're gracious. And they're not like that self-righteous person who's deceiving themselves, thinking they're right with God because they're, they're going to church or they're better than somebody else. Oh, no, dear friend. If your objection to Christianity has been that you don't want to be around a bunch of self-righteous people who just get in their little cultural bunkers and lob grenades at the world that is going to hell in a handbasket, oh, friends, that is not what this place is. Friends, I am these people's pastor, and they got issues, right? And, and listen, I have issues. Like, I am the most complicated, jacked-up person I know. And that is not hyperbole. I know I exaggerate stuff, baby. And no, you gave me an amen. My wife even... <laughs> My wife is even saying, because usually I exaggerate stuff just for a point or whatever. I'm not doing that right now. I am a wreck. I'm a wreck. But the difference, and I can say this confidently, the difference between me and my life 25 years ago is that I am, because of God's grace, taking God's side against my sin, and there's still so much in it that I need to take God's side against, and I'm not taking sin's side self-deceivingly against a dreaded God. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're more acquainted than anybody around us with our utter need because if we truly understand the Bible, we know that we didn't just decide to self-improve. We realize that we were dead in our sins, completely unable, without hope, no options, dead on the slab, in the tomb, wrapped in linen clothes, decomposing, stinking. The world around us may tell us lies and tell us that we're doing good and everything is great and we're a wonderful person. But as we stand before God, we realize that before Christ wrought his change in us, we stinketh. And he, because of his grace, not because we're smarter, not because we had more than anybody else, but because of his grace, called us and said, you, Brad, you, Johnny, you, Susie, get up. And we now, because he's given us a new heart, can now in slow, plodding, 
rugged ways live the rest of our life on this earth until we are glorified and made fully right before Jesus in a process that he then uses to display his surpassing worth to the world. And friends, you need to understand that if you're a Christian struggling with sin. You ever ask this question? I do. I ask it every time I get angry and fly off. I grew up the son of a football coach who's got some Italian in him, and I got some, I got, man, I run hot, man. I mean, steam comes out of my radiator all the time. I'm just, you don't have to agree with me too much now. I'm just passionate, and I shoot my mouth off, and I say stupid stuff. Sometimes I'll be preaching, and I'll say something stupid, and I'll think, ah, that was unhelpful. Right? And sometimes I think, Lord, why can't you just fast forward this sanctification process? I mean, I know I'm a Christian. I'm trusting in Christ. Why am I so slow? Like, why is this life such a plod? And I think the reason why he does that is that God is wanting to do something. Rather than just beam us up like the Star Trek, you know, Scotty, beam me up, Scotty. The reason he's leaving us here to plod through life, to take two steps forward and one step back and to repent and have humility and to lean on Christ and to, 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 to live a life of, of a rugged display of his grace is because he is wanting to use our dusty, complicated, plodding, inching along lives to be a sort of display to an onlooking world rather than just making us all perfect or transporting us out of this world. He leaves us here to wrestle and to fight, to be like an object lesson, a display to an onlooking world so that those around us that are not yet trusting in Christ, he uses our lives to show that, no, that there's something better than all of these broken counterfeit pleasures. There's something better than the sin that I'm even struggling with now. So come on, come on, friend. Come on, world around me. Come and trust in Christ because he is better. He's more satisfying. He's better than all of these things that we think will satisfy us but won't. And he leaves us here to be displays of the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world, friends. I heard it once in a teaching several years ago. Doug Duncan was saying this. I mentioned it this morning in our class that God desires to use our sanctification as the means by which he brings justification to people that are looking at us. So are you fighting sin right now? Don't cover it up and act like it's not there and try and be a super Christian. Run to the family of God. Run to God's grace. Be humble, repent, confess, and let your life and your battle against sin be a display of the surpassing worth of Jesus. That's far more encouraging to an onlooking world than somebody who acts like they got it all together, but inside they're crumbling. Amen. I was encouraged by that anyway. And then finally, let's wrap it up. Then how does a person go from living in the flesh to the spirit? Or, I think that's just another way of saying, how does a person become a Christian? How does a person go from death to life? How does a person go from being separated from Christ to in Christ? Condemned to not condemned? Well, we've talked about it, haven't we, with, with Lazarus? By the unconditional grace of God. And we need to understand what unconditional means. 
I think most of us think of unconditional as like, oh, well, God loves me no matter what. No matter what I do, I can just keep kind of doing whatever. No, friends, unconditional, the emphasis there on the unconditional grace of God is not that God is going to love you no matter what, although I think that's true if you're in Christ. But we've got to say a bunch of other things because we now have the Spirit of God and we have a new heart and we're, we're plodding faithfully towards Christ-likeness. But unconditional grace means that God decides to make us alive, to give us life because of nothing in us before we come to him, right? There's nothing in us that merits this grace. There was nothing in Lazarus that made him a good player for Jesus' team. There is nothing good in anybody that is living in the flesh that is unable to please God, that makes him useful to God that he needs, that he desires to have. But solely because of his grace, solely because of his mercy, which is rich, solely because of his love, he gives us his grace, friends. If you're a Christian, if you are believing and trusting in Christ, he loves you because he loves you loves you. And friends, this is good news if you're a Christian because if he loves you solely because of his unconditional love for you before you came to him, then he will surely keep loving you despite how you act. Right? And that love will then draw you into obedience, not cause you to say, well, I can do whatever I want now. Friends, if he loved you by his unconditional grace, you can be sure that he will bring you safely home and you're rugged plotting towards him. And how's this good news if you're not a Christian? You may think, oh my gosh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't have anything to do with this here, I'm, I'm dead in my sin, this is, man, this is, I'm never coming back to this place, that cat, he started off kind of good with the Mexican food thing, but he's offending me now. I went out of here. I want to get up, and the only reason I'm not getting up in the middle of this thing is because I don't want to be rude to the person that invited me. Right? I've been there. So why is this actually good news? That there's nothing in you that can make you right with God, but you are completely dependent on the unconditional grace of God. Why is it good news, friends? Oh, because that's your only hope, right? Because are you willing to stand before a holy, righteous creator of the universe and say, you know what? I know what the Bible says, and I know all these other knuckleheads out here, but I think I got what it takes to justify myself before you, and I'm going to try harder. And this, you know, I got a couple more months, but this January 1st, I am going to resolve to do better. Friends, as a fellow human, can I just encourage you, that never works. And so, friends, be, be wooed to this good news. Trust in God's rich mercy not in your enshackled will. Do you see that? Do you see that, friends? And if you see that, I think that is evidence that God is making you alive and giving you a heart so that you would trust in him. And how does he do this? He does this by causing you to hear words from his Bible like this. He gives the Holy Spirit that comes alongside his gospel that is preached or taught or shared in many different contexts, and he uses it to make you alive. He makes Jesus so beautiful, so lovely, not some legalistic religion of do's and don'ts, but he makes trusting in Christ such a freeing, such a beautiful, such a desirable thing that he melts hearts so that we turn and trust in him, and he makes us alive. And he does this 
by calling a bunch of people together, called a local church, a community of people, and using them as a display and giving them gifts. Do you realize that when this Holy Spirit comes and makes us alive, it doesn't just save us and then just kind of, you know, hold on to us for eternity. He gives us gifts. He's given every person in this room gifts to serve the local church, to encourage one another, to lay down our lives for one another. And together, collectively, we become a group of people that become a display of the surpassing worth of Christ. So friend, my question is, which type of person are you? Are you in the Spirit? Are you a Christian? I'll be encouraged. He who saved you by His grace will surely bring you safely home and cause you to stand on that day with life and peace forever and ever. Has it become obvious to you that you're not in the Spirit, that you're living according to your own desire? Oh, be encouraged. Look up and see Jesus. And for the first time ever, stop trusting in yourself and trust in Him and his work on the cross, where in his perfection he bore the penalty that should be yours. And he extinguished and absorbed and satisfied God's wrath that's barreling down on your head. And he removed it. And he rose again in victory over sin, death, the grave, all of its consequences. And now, right now, is knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying, stop your striving and trust in me. Friends, do that even now for the first time and be filled with God's spirit and receive a new heart and trust in him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come now to watch these two brothers be baptized and hear their testimonies, Lord, I pray that you would use these words from Paul to be like ammonia underneath our nose, to be like a smelling salt, snapping us out of the stupor of this world that lies to us so that we would see life and reality and eternity as it really is that we are completely dependent on you, that those are in, that are in you will, will live lives that ruggedly please you. And those that are not in you, their only hope is Christ, your grace, not their own willpower. God, would you help us see that? those that are not believers, would they turn and trust? Lord, I plead for you to give them eyes to see, to give them faith, to make them alive. Lord, would you do it? And would we be encouraged as these brothers testify and are baptized? In Jesus' name, amen.